Those deluded by the influence of material nature are not attached, are attached to the senses and sense objects. The wise should not disturb these foolish people whose knowledge is incomplete. Krishna is reiterating himself here from what he said earlier in maybe text 26. And the spirit of the text is that people are attached to sense gratification and identified with the movements of the modes of material nature. They need to learn how to move with those in wisdom rather than to stop moving with them, so to speak, and just witness them. That's not so easy. Maisaivani karmani sanyasya dhyatma chetasa so here Krishna says, offering all of one's actions unto me in knowledge of the indwelling super soul, free from desire, selfishness and grief, fight. So this is maybe the second place in this chapter, first being, I think, 3.9, where Krishna has indicated that the kind of nishkam karma yoga that he wants him to engage in is that in which the fruits of his detached work and dutifully performed actions are offered to Bhagawan or are in consideration of himself, who is the indwelling guide that he uh, refers to here. So he's not advocating that Banishkam Karma Yoga we should arrive at Atmagyan only, but at Paramatmagyan as well, so this means bhakti, relationship between atma and, and paramatma. So this is uh, kind of a concluding verse, but also a verse that begins a, a section in which there are a number of, could be said, veiled references to, to bhakti. He says, Jematam idam nityam anuttishtanti manava Persons who constantly practice this, my own doctrine, with full faith and without envy, are also released from karmic reactions. So my own doctrine, we know that the doctrine of Krishna, his own teaching, you could say this is his teaching, Nishkam Karma Yoga, but more precisely, others could teach that as well. But... Um, Bhakti is his, his, his real teaching, and there's, as I say, bhakti factored into this Nishkam Karma Yoga, which is making it meaningful. I think I quoted the other day from Bhagavatam and Vishwanachakritaku's commentary on Narad's comments or instructions to Vyas when he said that Nishkamim api achuta bhava bhajitam nashoba. Noshobate jnanam alam niranjanam nashobate. Gyan is not, means knowledge of the self, it's not shobha, it's not very becoming, it's not very beautiful. When naishkarmya api achutta bhava vajitam, when it's devoid of bhakti, of any feeling for the infallible Lord, then it's not very becoming, it's not very beautiful, it's not an ornament of the soul. Then, uh, he says, what then to speak of karma? Sakam karma. That's not very becoming at all. Or, for that matter, nishkam karma. He says, and Vishnu Chakuditakar in his commentary says, this is useless. Nishkam karma yoga is, one gets nothing from this. Because knowledge is nothing. He's basically saying in the verse, and that's the fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga. So if the fruit of Nishkam, so Gyan is nothing, so what to speak of karma? And 
Nishkam Karma Yoga almost goes without saying, the fruit of which is gyan. It's not very beautiful. It's not becoming, it's meaningless, he says. There's no gain, there's no plus there. He has said in other places, without the jnani, without in, invariably, without bhakti, invariably uh, begins to think of the Lord in a, in, a, in a materialistic way and bhakti in a materialistic way, as if it's mixed with the modes of nature. And such people. They think they're liberated, they've attained Jivan Mukti, but because they have no full appreciation for bhakti, adha, they come down from their position. So, this is the Lord's path, bhakti, and although he's advocating Nishkam Karma Yoga, it's a particular kind of Nishkam Yoga, Karma Yoga that has some bhakti in it. Therefore, it's meaningful useful. My path, he says, my teaching. He says, He refers to it as nityam, and we know that that um, only bhakti is really nityam in the full sense of the term. It could be said that karma yoga is nityam in that its fruit is 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 knowledge of the self, which is eternal, but that won't be realized fully without bhakti. So it can be seen, as to say, as a covert reference, really, to uh, bhakti, which is really what Arjuna is all about, obviously. And that's why I've said in the beginning of this chapter, in my commentary on the first couple of verses, where Arjuna's confusion comes up about jnana and karma, about acting buddhi with intelligence, which means not acting, in other words, moving away from action by um, fixing the, 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 the intelligence on the Atma. He's confused about whether Arjuna want, Krishna wants that of him or he wants karma, he wants action of him. Really, that's why I've said there, he, he's not really interested in either one of them. That's why he's confused. He wants bhakti, which is what Arjuna Krishna was talking about at first, when he first started talking about yoga. First he started talking about the self, the difference between self and matter, and then he said, let me teach you about yoga. And of course, as we know, he began to speak about bhakti yoga. And then he said, but you're not qualified for bhakti yoga. So he began to talk about nishkam karma yoga. So Arjun's really interested in bhakti. He is a bhakta. This is his real position. He's taken a different position under Krishna's influence for the sake of teaching. But it can be said he's really not attracted to karma again, so he's disturbed. Why are you telling me about these things? Why are you teaching me now about about these things? Why are you saying this is my well all I'm eligible for when I'm standing before you and you can give bhakti? You're the you're the source of bhakti. So some he is talking about bhakti ultimately in the Gita. This is where he wants to bring Arjuna to and, and all of us and so forth. And in one sense, this is the yoga ladder, as we said, that talks about eligibility, but the other side of it is it's speaking in a way about bhakti in contrast to what bhakti isn't or, or, all the, or what's, what's lacking in comparison to bhakti and so forth. This is all for the sake of awakening faith in bhakti, even this section. I mean, it concludes the sixth chapter, that the first six chapters with the emphasis on bhakti. This is the best type of yoga and obviously one thinks, well, I, that's what I, sh- I should do. That's the conclusion he brings Arjuna to, and then he begins to speak about it. So to see this as a reference to bhakti is hardly a stretch. He speaks of shraddha, eternal, eternality of the path. Shraddha in the, in the, in the, in the our school, of course, in, in, uh, means shastriya shraddha, and in the Ganmarg as well. So even the Ganmarg, which is somewhat of an ascending marg path rather than a descending path, is knowledge descends through Shastra. So from up to down it comes. It's all about uh, grace by which we advance. So, ye tvetad abhyasuyanto anutishtanti mematam sarvagyana vimudham sthan vidti However, those who are out of envy of my doctrine 
do not practice it are deluded and bereft of knowledge. Know that such people have lost their minds and are deprived of the goal of life. Okay. They cannot achieve the goal of life. They cannot achieve liberation, which could be seen as a goal. It's not the goal we aspire for. That's within the falls within the goal that we pursue as a byproduct. But this can be a verse that uh, can be cited as a reference for the idea that those who do not take up bhakti cannot get mukti. They're deprived of the goal of life because they're envious of me. They don't take up my doctrine. No. Krishna's doctrine is really not Nishkam Karma Yoga. <laughs> it's bhakti. So, without following my directive, one's, one's lost. So he contrasts here. First he says that when persons who practice my doctrine, this is their, this is, they get liberation. Those who don't must be out of envy of me. They cannot achieve it. You cannot achieve the goal. Freedom from karma, which he says he's speaking about here. That means they can't get mukti. Uh, those who are envious of bhakti, of me, and my teaching, and they cannot get so. People talk big thing about mukti, but in the context of that, they criticize Krishna and bhakti. And uh, this is their position then. Sadvisham chetate swasya he says, even wise people act according to their nature they have acquired in this world. People who follow their acquired nature, what will repression accomplish? This is an indirect kind of criticism of gyan then. He's referring to gyan as a kind of a repression of action. What good will that do? Um, people have their natures and they'll come out anyway. It will look ugly when it does. So better to find a way to move with your nature, he says. The, the Vedas take into consideration one's nature. That's Varnashram Dharma. It's, it's, a, it's a, an analysis of one's psychophysiological makeup and it offers action that will correspond with that that upon taking up will result in some purification, especially when it's engaged in without attachment to the to the fruits. So all of this in bhakti as well is a path that is in consideration of one's nature. What take Gyan doesn't take it into consideration. On its face, it just says that nature that you have, it's all Maya, it's all wrong. It's not really you. That's just the gunas. Give it up. Stop it. So okay, but. Krishna says, what will, this, what will this repression do? Some people take this verse to say, what will repression do? You know, so <laughs> why should I repress the things that, you know, there are, I, the things that I want to do that aren't favorable to bhakti if I repress them? You know, where, where is that going to get me? Hmm? I hear this from devotees. <laughs> this is not what the verse is saying. You're saying, do bhakti. Bhakti is the friendly path. Hmm? Even Nishkam Karma Yoga the fruits offered to Bhagwan is very friendly because it takes your nature into consideration. And taking your nature into consideration, it, it gives you helpful ways in which you can avoid those kinds of activities devotees say that they, <laughs> that they, uh, that what will repression accomplish and, and do. Of course, what's really being said here in this chapter also is that there are people like that, who can't take the scriptural advice, who can't adhere to it, what can be done for them? We're talking to people who can, who have some interest in it. What can be done for them? Where is their faith? You have to have faith, tread the path. So if you have faith, this and, 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 and you avail yourself to the scripture and tie your faith to scripture, you know, this is ignorance, this isn't good for me, and we still we can move according to our nature and so forth, but... Certain things should be given up. Bhakti is a very friendly path. It doesn't ask you just to stop altogether, but it does ask you to give up certain things that aren't favorable for bhakti. We think, well, how do I have the power to do that? Well, it takes, it takes two things. It requires two things. It requires intelligence to understand, as I said last night, what is material desire, its misery from beginning to end. But I find it's pleasurable. Well, that's your ignorance. 
Now, you need to study, you need to be convinced. It's not. I mean, even you get experience, it, it feels good for a minute, and then it feels, feels bad, whatever, you know, later on, when the, when the full course. Still, you go back to it, eking out a little bit of pleasure and then undergoing the misery. And so, this is ignorance. So you have to be convinced of that. It's ignorance. And then, so, so what then? Then, then, then how, still, how will I overcome this big ignorance? Of my, well, first of all, like I say, come to knowledge, understand it. Then you want to overcome it. Then you have the power of Krishna on your side to overcome it. You have to pray. But we don't even pray to overcome it. We're afraid to because we, we like it too much. And so we don't really want to pray to give it up because, you know, that would be problematic. And so, you know, I kind of avoid that. So we don't. We don't make progress then. Therefore, you have to bear your soul. You have to ask, give me the strength to ask you for the things that I don't want to ask for. Then mm-hmm. you're very powerful, so you can do that. This is my position. At least you have to be sincere about that. And this is very simple. This is bhakti. It's very, very simple. And huge accomplishments. Mountains can be moved by this. It's a very simple thing. We have a lot of complicated philosophy to you know, arrive at a very, very simple um, conclusion as to how to proceed in a very easy path. I mean, Krishna is extremely powerful. As I say, he can create worlds just by his will. So to speak of Removing your material desire. Nita abha ar kobe nita chandir koruno hive sangsara vasanamor kobe tu chahabe. He's standing right here, Nityananda Prabhu. Ask him, free me from sangsara vasana, material desire that's that's propelling the sangsara. But as I say, we don't, we don't, we, we don't, we, the desire comes up in our heart and we're chanting and we know this isn't good, but the, instead of trying to like, Plead that it may be, may be transcended, and so we we change the subject, something like that. So this is uh, not a good idea. So, but, but anyway, like I say, bhakti's the idea. Bhakti's very friendly. This karma yoga with the fruits dedicated to the Lord is very, very friendly compared to gyan. Very user friendly. It takes your na- your nature into consideration and so forth. And of course, it's speaking to, to intelligent people, thoughtful people who can listen to logic, good reasoning, who have uh, faith in revelation, the power of the scripture, and so forth. People that don't, then what, what, what can be done? Hmm? You can touch them with bhakti, I suppose. Uh, that's true. Bhakti can touch them. But um, they have to apply themselves. So. Indriyas yendriyas yarte ragadveshu velastito tayorna vasham agacheto astohi asya paripantino. Attachment and aversion in relation to the sense objects are deeply rooted in the senses, which did not come under the control of these two, for they are one's enemies. Shreyan svadharmo viguna paradharamat. Svanushtitat, svadharme nidhanam sreya, paradharmo vayavayaha. One should act in accordance with one's own nature, even though in doing so one may appear faulty. This course of action is better than engaging in other duties, however well you might attend to them. It is better to die engaged in accordance with one's own nature, for other duties invite peril. Of course, here in terms of nature, he's speaking about Varnashram and the power of following that uh, such codes of of action and directives for different types of people and so forth that is uh, coming from the from the scripture. This, of course, seems to be in a verse that's in uh, contradiction to the conclusion of the Gita. Here, Krishna says. Follow your dharma. What does he say at the end? Give up your dharma. So, dilemma. Let's read the commentary. Verses. Uh, does anybody have the book of the Should I read the commentary? Verses 33 to 35 are covert advocacy of bhakti, which, as B.R. Sridhar Dev Goswami says, quote, is the eternal, super excellent, natural function of the soul, end quote. 
In the words of Sri Chaitanya, the Jiva soul is the eternal servant of Krishna, Jivar Swarupai Krishna Nityadas, from Madhyalila 21.8. This is ultimately what Krishna has in mind for Arjuna and Nishkam Karma Yoga, in which the fruit of one's work is offered to Krishna is similar to Bhakti. In verse 30, Krishna introduces himself into the equation of selfless work as the one to whom one's action should be dedicated, Mai Sarvani Karmani. His commanding Arjuna to fight only overtly appears to be a directive in consideration of Arjuna's warrior nature. Covertly, Krishna commands Arjuna to act in accordance with his soul's interest in terms of an eternal loving relationship with him. In verse 31, Krishna describes the path he wants Arjuna to tread as his own, Maimatam, a path that is eternal and arises out of faith, Shraddha, devoid of envy, Anasuya, of himself. Again in verse 32, Krishna identifies this path as his own, Maimatam. In verse 33, Krishna subtly plays down the path of Gyan, Gyanabhanapi. In the present verse, Krishna says that pure devotion is the natural function of the soul, even if acting in the soul's interest appears inappropriate from the vantage point of socio-religious considerations, <coughs> it is far superior to mere moral conformity. In the pursuit of the soul's eternal interest, even death is auspicious. In contrast, pursuance of any interest other than one's spiritual interest is perilous, however perfectly it is pursued. Looking at these verses in light of bhakti, one can find parallels between this verse and the Gita's conclusion, 1866. The Gita concludes by telling us that abandoning socio-religious concerns and surrendering to Krishna himself is the essence of all dharma, prema dharma. Here, he covertly says the same thing. You should act in accordance with your own nature as a devotee, even though in doing so you may appear faulty for neglecting worldly concerns. This course of action is better than engaging in any other duties, however well you might attend to them. It would be better to die acting in accordance with your own eternal nature for other duties invite peril of continued birth and death. <laughs> the customary interpretation of this verse renders it a socio-religious instruction of relative value, in apparent contradiction with the Gita's conclusion. However, there need not be any contradiction, for truth is administered in installments. Understanding this verse in terms of Nishkam Karma Yoga sheds further light on the importance of scripture. Krishna told Arjuna not to think that he could perform another's duty to avoid fighting. Scripture is to be followed. Baladev Vidyapushan says that just as one sees with eyes and not other senses, we learn about religion from Scripture. Doing another's duty or acting against one's own nature will disturb the socio-religious order. With this, Krishna stops as if he is getting ahead of himself in his instructions to Arjuna. As Krishna pauses, collecting himself to continue his emphasis on karma yoga, Arjuna asks a pertinent question. He wants to know what it is that causes one to act contrary to scripture even after gaining knowledge of it. And we'll hear that tomorrow. Are there any questions? Is that the verse of Sri Maharaj also contrasted with the last verse and like cut in a slightly different way? Mm-hmm. Not like wait and then when you can go ahead. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Instructions, there's two ways to take it, uh, that there's no contradiction because the truth that uh, Krishna wants to give to Arjuna is such that it has to sometimes be given in installments. So sometimes we may say, do this, and sometimes we may say, do the opposite, depending upon one's level of eligibility. But the other way to look at it is, as has been explained here, it can all be looked at as... No, that, that's, that's the way I'm just talking about. Socio-religious means do, do this and follow your dharma in consideration of the socio-religious order. And Sarvadhamma Prindyaja says don't consider the socio-religious order. So overtly it seems to be in contradiction. It's not a contradiction when we look at it as an installment along the path that will be retired later on. And the path has to sometimes be administered or taught like that. But another way to look at it is, is, as we read in the purport here in the commentary, he can be seen to covertly be speaking about the same thing he's speaking about in uh, 1866. Again, right? he says, you should act in accordance with your nature as a devotee. That's his other swadharma. There's two swadharmas, your nature 
in consideration of the your conditioning and your dharma in terms of your soul. So we're adding a couple of words here in parentheses. You should act in accordance with your nature as a devotee, even though in doing so you may appear faulty for neglecting worldly concerns rather than faulty because you're outside of the you're doing someone else's duty in a social religious order. Even though doing so, you may appear to be faulty for neglecting worldly concerns. This course of action is better than engaging in other duties, however well you might attend to them, whatever the other's duties are in the world and so forth. It would be better to die acting in accordance with your own eternal nature for other duties invite peril of continued birth and death. Verse ostensibly saying peril of social religious disorder and so forth. So, so no contradiction there. Bhakti, bhakti, bhakti. Any question? I've done just a technical thing about the verse. It takes 31 because it says that with full faith and without envy, I mean, persons who constantly practice this mild doctrine with full faith and without envy are also released from current reactions. So, does that also refer to the fact that these conquer without offering themselves to God? No. Um, he says that you become free, in the previous verse, free from selfish desire. Oh, oh, you know, he says, offering was access to me in knowledge of the indwelling super, free from desire. Fight. Uh, it means that not only do they get knowledge, which is normally the fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga, but they get liberation as well. In verse 28, he said, one who gains, one who knows this truth, the Tatvavit, we talked about this yesterday, about the two spheres of action and the gunas, he remains unattached. Yeah, because he gets knowledge, and by doing in consideration of me, he gets Mukti, he gets liberation, he gets Vaikuntha. Okay. Simad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jaya. Uttamande Hadiyadi Bo. So we're coming to the last section now of the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And our Krishna's been speaking about the, the force, the power of action the virtues of action, detached action, where the fruits are offered to himself. And in the context of doing that, he's alluded to devotion itself in several verses as his own path and the virtues of that and the downside of not pursuing that, not following that. And so some people don't do that. And as wise as his discourse on that has been, with all the support that he's given, logical support, support of, uh, if the whole chapter is looked at as devotion, let's say, in relation to these verses that seem to speak about it more directly than not, and can be construed to be a covert emphasis on bhakti, which is where this is all, all going, then, as I say, with logic, with with uh, reference to the example of other great people and so forth, he's made a strong case for the power of the uh, virtuous actions, virtuous act or of a way of conducting oneself in which, as I say, the fruits of one's action are offered to Bhagwan and Conversely, actions that one is detached from enjoying the fruit oneself. And so it's been, you know, quite a bit of good good reasoning offered here in support of that and the virtues of that. Still, he concluded the section by saying that um, and those who don't follow it, well, their position is lamentable. He says... Um, that um, 
anyway, <clears throat> one should not, uh, I guess it's verse 32, those who out of envy of my doctrine do not practice it are deluded and bereft of knowledge, know that such people have lost their minds and are deprived of the goal of life. <clears throat> he goes on for a couple more verses, verses speaking about action and um, attachment and aversion to sense objects and how it's deeply rooted in the senses and what you not come under the control of this and so on and so forth. So anyway, the question of Arjuna is then, what is the force by which one, despite all of this, is is seemingly like pulled um, away by, by another influence? What's Who is the... Uh, is there a Satan? There appears to be, he says... Arjunavacha atakena prayuktoyam papam charati purushaha anichcham apivashneya balad eva niyojita. So he says that by what is one prayukta forced towards the performance of evil acts, even though one may not desire to be engaged in them? What is that force that uh, propels him in that direction, drags him in that direction? So, again, is there is there a Satan? There appears to be some other force here. You are the noble God offering such good advice and so forth. Makes good sense, but still we, we act otherwise. Who's making us do that? And, of course, in uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, there is no real competitor with God like we have in... Uh, in Christianity, we do have a Satan. He's a competitor, fallen angel, and he goes after us, and <coughs> and so forth. So I guess um, Hinduism is not as culpable as it's often made out to be in terms of promoting irresponsibility by the Christian uh, world. And the wizards will see here. We have to take responsibility ourselves for that. It's the influence of nature, but there's no Satan. Somebody else didn't make us do it. Krishna says, Shiva Gavana Vacha Kam Esha Krode Raja Guna Samud Baba Mahasana Mahapapam Pidiyenam Iha Bairinam He says, there is an enemy and he's very powerful and he's insatiable like fire. Fire is such that the more you put into it, it just eats it up, it desires, you know, it, it, excuse me, it consumes it, it consumes it, it burns it, and asks for, asks for more. It's, it's, it's never, fire never says, enough, enough, I'm too hot here. <laughs> no, it just uh, takes more. Fire is incidentally also thought of in a purifying way. Whatever goes into it is, is, is uh, said to be purified like the mouth of Agni. So, throw it in the fire, it comes out. Pure, but here anyway, its insatiable nature is invoked, and uh, for the sake of making a comparison, the nature of this force is that it's insatiable and, and, and greatly uh, sinful. It's an enemy. These are strong words. And so the uh, implication is that a strong solution is required to, uh, to deal with the, uh, with the problem. Where is it? Who is it? And he says, Kama Isha, Krodha Isha, Rajaguna, Samud Baba. It's, uh, it's manifest from, it's, it, it's born from the mode of passion. Um, it's called desire, and it gets transferred into anger or frustration. So, again, the modes of nature are <coughs> mentioned. I... Um, pointed out that earlier in this chapter the modes of nature were mentioned perhaps for the first time in the Gita when um, just a few verses back, a couple sections back Krishna said that prakritikriyamanani gunai karmani sarvasa ahankara vimunatma kartahamiti manyate prakritikriyamanani gunai karmani so the, the, the guna, the modes of nature bind one and they are really in that verse it was explained, the actor, not the self. 
the self thinks one to be to be doing activities that are actually performed by material nature. Of course, we discussed that verse and we learned that it doesn't mean that the soul is inactive and has is not an agent of action and has no will, but the deluded soul thinks that the motion and so forth that are actually the movements of nature are his own. He starts them, he initiates them, he um, turns on the engine of material nature, so to speak. But I can get in the car and turn on the car, that doesn't mean I'm, that, uh, I'm the engine, I'm the motor, I'm all those, those movements and so forth. Uh, and we see that people do tend to think like that sometimes. They really identify with their car too much, you know. Um, so we've too much identified with this particular uh, manifestation of the modes of nature. We think it's ourself. That's what the verse is saying. But at any rate, this is, is uh, the first really, in one sense, significant mention of the modes of nature. There is another, an earlier mention, actually, in the second chapter, when Krishna is describing bhakti as being nistraigunyo, I neglected to point that out, or I forgot it when I stressed that this may be, or I suggested this may be the first place in the Gita where the modes of nature, of nature are mentioned. There, it said, as you recall, Trigunya Vishaya Veda Nistrigunya Bhavardhana. The Vedas deal mostly with Triguna, the three, the, that which can be attained within the influence of the three Gunas, the greater part of the Veda. In other words, the greater part of the Veda deals with movement, elevation, progress, if you will, within the modes of nature, and what, what may be accomplished within the modes of nature. Whereas the smaller portion, but the more important portion of the Vedic literature, its concluding portion deals with, um, ultimately, with bhakti, <clears throat> and the concluding portion being ultimately the Bhagavatam, the final word of, the final, final ink from the pen of Vyas. And... The subject is that which is transcendental to the modes of nature. Dharma projita kaita utra saranam satam. It's not dealing with kaitava dharma. Kaitava dharma means kaitava means cheating. Dharma projita kaitava. Kaitava means cheating. So cheating dharma means that uh, dharma that you by which you make a deal with God and you're actually trying to get the best part of the deal. Hmm. You're trying to do less and get more. That's called cheating. <laughs> Krishna Discovery, Raj Goswami says, but he, he, he describes this, he says, Tarnam Kaitiva, I call it cheating. Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha, he says. All the goals of life, including Moksha. Bhagavatam says, Dharma Projita Kaitavotra. Projita means completely. Rejecting Kaitiva Dharma. And Sridhar Swami, the famous commentator, has been cited by the Goswamis in this connection as having explained the word projita, meaning completely rejecting, that the Bhagavatam and its rejection of anything short of nirmatsaranam satam, an unenvious path of, of uh, transcendental path of bhakti to be uh, something worthy of rejection, that, to include moksha, liberation, unto itself, as a goal unto itself. So it, it is, anyway, the point is it's amala purana, it's the spotless purana, it doesn't, it doesn't deal with anything within the modes of nature, it doesn't deal with uh, even uh, uh, sattva guna, only indirectly by way of speaking about it in relation to bhakti and emphasizing, stressing the ideal of bhakti. So it is nistraigunyo. It is beyond the modes of nature, bhakti. And so it has the power to take us beyond the modes of nature. It is said that the mukti will be possible if bhakti willingly, out of her own independence, subordinates herself to mukti in a sattviki form. It's mentioned in the third canon with the Bhagavatam, the teachings of Kapila to his his um, dear mother, Devahuti, bhakti in different modes of nature. It doesn't mean that really bhakti is in the mode of nature, but it means that the performer is in a particular mode of nature. And then, then bhakti subordinates herself to make it possible for that person to achieve that goal. So with regard to 
sattvic people who want mukti, bhakti may assist them out of her independence and take on the sattvic form. So we say, it's, it's, it's interesting, we say sattva cannot give mukti. Then someone says, well, how can a sattvic form of bhakti give mukti? Well, as I say, because she's transcendental, she's putting herself in a sattvic form, and for that purpose, so that's her, within her power. She's not inherently <coughs> sattvic, she's nirguna. So, at any rate, this is the first mention, I could say, and, uh, but with regard to the binding effects of the modes of nature, we find an emphasis here in this chapter, in that verse, prakritikriyamani gunaikamani sarvasa And here, another unbecoming influence of the modes of nature, and Rajagunas particularly is, is mentioned. So, Rajasattva means clarity and and um, and peace. It's a kind of inactivity that it is promoted in sattva. It's the antithesis of the inactivity in tamas. Tamas is inactivity, and in between the two is rajas, desire. And desire means desire for or here for things. So there's the, there's a way then to get the things. Its attachment to the things may be tamasic, but attachment to the way to get them is rajasic. So, sattva and tamas are sometimes considered uh, similar. Like if you go too far right, you end up on the left, something like that. Therefore, sometimes the sages in the forest are compared to monkeys. <laughs> it's an inapt comparison, but there are similarities. They live under the tree, they eat only the fruits, they are naked you know, or barely dressed and so forth, but look a little closer and they're quite a bit different in their preoccupation. So in between, the whole world's going on, in other words. Sattva is, is, is the end of the world, and Thomas is the end of the world, too. <laughs> Sattva is the beginning of, of the bliss that is not ignorance, and Thomas is the bliss that some people sometimes say ignorance provides. A kind of a diluted form of of bliss that uh, is is a kind of an answer to the to the sorrow of desire, the inevitability. Rajas means sorrow. Also, it's mentioned in the fourteenth chapter. Sorrow, it's inevitable. Desire means sorrow. Desire for things, um, because of course you can't keep them. Can't, uh, you can't really get them. You can't really own them, so to speak. Uh, so it inevitably, desire inevitably leads to sorrow. Again, the insatiable nature of desire, the fire. So also from that point of view, the more you feed it, the more, you get, even if you do get it, so to speak, it turns out to not be enough. So there's a need for more. So this is the world. Now the world is moving. Rajaguna, it's all going around. And Sattva and Thomas are two ways to, you know, to try to try to bring it to an end. One a wise way, one a bewildered and ignorant way. So there's a lot of people that aren't interested in what Krishna's talking about here, even though it's well reasoned the, the better part of the world. And it's making the whole thing go around. That's why because the world is primarily governed in a sense by, by Rajaguna. Real religion, real spirituality will never make sense to the world. It will never make sense. Now, you know, we speak about Gaudiya Vaishnavism in a way to make it make sense, to sound reasonable and up to date and, you know, PC to a point. And the reason for that is because it is to an extent. And also because there's a lot of misrepresentation of it that's a real distortion of what it is, that's really dysfunctional from a, let's say, for example, one aspect of it, from a psychological point of view and from our spiritual point of view, because it's one thing to forego attachments and apparent responsibilities that arise from those attachments and desires in the name of spiritual life, and another thing to actually do them in pursuit of authentic 
spiritual life. So when people do that in the name of that, some kind of like a false renunciation, then there's all kind of problems and misrepresentation and dysfunctionality that the world will recognize and the devotees, genuine devotees, will also recognize. So we want to distinguish ourselves from that. So we critique that. But in the context of critiquing that, what we, we, we make Gaudiya Vaishnavism, for example, Gaudiya Vedanta, more appealing to more together people who identify with being materially in balance. And so there's some scope for making that kind of a presentation. But as people come within that in time, they're going to find out we're going out the other side here. And it starts to not make sense. Because it's not PC in every respect. It's not going to, in its essence, in its essential form, what it really is, is not something that's going to make sense from a Rajasic point of view. From a point of view that is centered on the world, improving the world, making the world better, getting more out of the world than there is to be gotten in any respect whether in a virtuous sense, in, 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 even in the best sense. It's, uh, it's you know, if we tell, tell you that, uh, you know, we got a lady here and she's cultivating sakya, bhava. And so internally she's cultivating the mood of a, of a young boy in, in Vrindavan. Now we put that before the psych, psychs, the psychologists of the world, and they're going to come up with all kinds of red flags. This is a problem. This is, whoa, where is this going? Or we got a guy, and he's cultivating the Gopi Bhava. You know, so, wait a minute. This is, this, this is, this sounds like this is going to be a problem. And, and they could be, they could be right um, from their, you know, perspective. So they have good reasoning for it and, and so forth. I mean, we, we, I said, some time ago, I think it was during the Gore Prime, we're all here because one man left his family and kids. You know, we ever go back and think, I wonder how Prabhupada's kids feel about that, you know? I mean, maybe they're, you know, maybe that wasn't right, you know? Maybe maybe his kids, you know, are now, you know, I mean, they're his kids, you know? He's responsible for that, you know? He walked out on them, and he did. He just walked out one day. It's pretty radical. If you think about it, extremely radical. He just one day got up and said, this isn't working for me in terms of what I understand life is about. So I'm, I'm out of here. You can imagine what the neighbors thought. There was a fire burning in him that no one could really understand. Um, and so he, and he had to quench that fire. He had some greed, if you will, some lust for Krishna consciousness. And he just walked out. I mean, really, seriously, just like one day, the next day he wasn't there. There was no, like, big preparation or, you know, you know, Chidahari, you got to give me more time, you know, you know, figure it out, you know. You know it's like, he's gone, you know. That's it. He, so that's an example of how radical of a teaching we are actually promoting. And when people get wind of that, like, we're weird, you know. <laughs> There's no, you're not going to convince them otherwise unless you can convince them, that, you know, what the... Of what your you know, what the world is like, you know, what the world is, what desire is, and so on and so forth. And that's not an easy task. You can, people can flirt with it, you know, theoretically, and it sounds interesting. You're not the body, so forth. But the ramifications of that, and this is just a, you know the the basic ABCs of real spiritual life, are huge. And they, like I've said before, you know, the the, the apple coined phrase, I like it. Think differently. That's a soft version, I would call it. Think differently of Krishna consciousness. The real, you know, version that you don't say out loud is think radically. We're really different here. We got a very different idea. And it's not gonna work with the world. Western religion has been very um keen on looking at religion and spirituality in terms of its value by way of, of, of evaluating to what extent it makes the world better. It makes you better in the world. I'm not saying Gaudi Vaishnavism doesn't make you better in the world, but in a one sense, it makes you dysfunctional in the world. Because you get enough of it and you lose interest. How can you hang out 
than with people. Even if they might be your own kids or they might be your own parents, you've got nothing in common anymore. You know, I mean, you've got, you're interested in, in the philosophy of Krishna consciousness, and it's not real like the greatest thing to bring up at a tea party, you know, or uh, you know, at, at, at the coffee table or whatever, you know. It's it's like my brother said, you know, in the story I tell, you know, it's like I had a painted my life, you know, in watercolors, and your words are throwing water on it. It's all dissolving. It's like, hey, there's no more conversation here. I was a young kid. I I I and I was told what as much as a young person can, I mean, there was a point where I started to understand religion, the implications of it, when it was explained to me, and I thought, well, I guess we should all become priests then, you know. That was what made sense to me. Okay, well, you know, this isn't the real home, you know, kind of a thing. So let's live our whole life for, you know, for that. Let's, let's, it's an investment in the future. This life is an investment in the future. So, this is uh, again not going to be not going to be popular. And the more you get uh, interested in, in 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 what this is about, you get interested in the philosophy. Then the, the what the, the news isn't going to be very interesting. The chit chat of you know, oh, I went here, I did that. What's the weather like? You know, I remember my, I met my parents after six years of not having any contact with them, after disappearing into the to the. Krishna consciousness movement. I wrote him a letter. I said, this is what I'm doing, you know, and then that was it, and then I was gone. And I've told this story before, but I was in the Chicago temple, and briefly, so my, my, and I was visiting, and I was supposed to give the lecture that night, and there was this little room in the foyer where the sannyasis would, would stay. So I came out and kind of to oversee the crowd before they went downstairs where the temple was. And there's a big crowd of people out there, and, and there I see this lady and man going, ladies going up to each devotee, and talk to them. I say, who the hell? And I look at it, and I see, this is my mother. You know, she's going up to one devotee, and she was asking him, you know who you know Triparari is? You know, are you, where can I find him? And so she's coming around, and coming around, and, you know, and she comes around to me. It's not that there were a whole bunch of devotees, but I saw her ask one, two, and I guess they were sending her in you know, my direction. So I'm watching, she comes over, and she comes up to me and says, do you know who Triparari is? And I said, well, Mom, that's me, you know. <laughs> oh, you know, she looked again, yeah, that's you, you know. Ah! You know, and so forth, which is great, you know, and, and, and all. And so I said, well, come on in this room here, you know, <laughs> close the door. And, uh, and so then, you know, it was like, well, you know, what do you talk about, you know? And so it, it went to the weather, the weather's been good. You know, it was a lot worse, but I hadn't talked to him for six years. But, yeah. but at any rate, you know, the, the, the level of the conversation and the level of interest and so forth is going to change. So that's just philosophically speaking. Then when you start getting a taste, the implications of it is it's hard to hear this other, other stuff, mundane talk. You know, satam prasanga karna rasayana kata. It's a rasayana. It's like a rejuvenator, the harikata. And one just like, it, it's, it's giving them life. And Bhagavatam compares the topics of the of, of the Bhagavad. What do they say? It's, he says, you know, these topics are wonderful. They're composed that that they're they're different. He's speaking with such enthusiasm. He says, it's another creation. The Bhagavad, these talks, it's a whole different world, and even even the sound of it. You know, one verse is a power to change the course of your whole life. And conversely, other topics are like places of pilgrimage for crows. I mean, what does a crow say is, is the idea. There's still nothing, you know, of much value there. So you, you end up becoming, you know, like dysfunctional in a, in a, in a sense that you can't function. In relation to the world, the extremities are, of course, Mahaprabhu was, Rupa Goswami is writing, Tunde, Tundavali, about Harinam. He says, Oh, and the two syllables, Krishna, I hear them. I need thousands of ears to take advantage, you know, the thousands of tongues. When it enters my heart, dances in the courtyard of my heart, these two syllables, my senses become inert. I, I become dysfunctional. I cannot function in relation to the sense objects, which is what Kama. Raga, you know, uh, this uh, 
Rajaguna is all about, functioning in relation to sense objects. We're finding meaning in that. And I can't find any meaning in it. I can't, I'm di- I can't function. That's kind of dysfunction. I can't, I'm infunctional or you know, non-functional. And so I'm looked at as being dysfunctional. You know, it starts to, there's this divide where, where, where your involvement may be good, that's nice, but if it's too much, hey, wait a minute, you know. You're getting a little weird here, because, you know. So again, what is it, Krishna? Um, Krishna premia adbhuta charita, bhayabisha jvala hoy, On the outside, it looks really weird. It looks frightening on different levels. To to the extent to which someone's attached to to sense objects and and attached to the, the, to the means of acquiring them, which is, which is Rajaguna, Rajaguna, Tamaguna. So think, uh, you know, radically is the idea. This is, this is not going to work for a world that is governed by Rajaguna. It's not going to, at a certain point, it's just not going to make sense. It's not going to match up. And they're going to have all kinds of good reasoning that people of the same ilk are going to agree with, and you're going to be out, and, and you're going to be lucky. <laughs> and you'll think, well, that's it, I'm out. <laughs> I don't fit. And so, therefore, we need the, we need the Sangha, Association of Devotees, where we can, we can uh, because there's movement on the side of bhakti also. And, um, and there's, there's objects of the senses to be attached to and, and a means for acquiring them. It's, it's, it's for the satisfaction of Krishna's senses that, uh, that bhakti is, uh, is all about. So, anyway, he says here, this is a big problem. This is, this is the, the influence of the, of the material nature of, of Rajaguna. It's the nature of conditioned life. You um, have to take responsibility for your involvement in it in the term in terms of doing what's necessary to get out we do say it's an adi and so you know what we 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 we're not responsible i suppose in that sense but we're responsible since forever <laughs> that's another way to look at it so anyway the responsible thing that is being advocated is to is to change the course and a radical means is required because this is so far Reaching. This is what the whole world's going on, and he says, "Mahashano, Mahapapong. It's a it's a great enemy. It's devouring them. It's a great sinful, and it's it's insatiable like fire." So the implication is that he's described him as an enemy. All the commentators have quoted from Bhagavatam. What's that story? The ninth canto. Is it um, Yayati or is it you know, who who has? Uh, he comes to the conclusion, I believe it is, that, that all of the things in the world can never satisfy one person. If you were to give all the things in the world to one person, that one person would not be satisfied. That's a strong statement, but it's true. Such is the insatiable nature of desire. Wow. And what's the hope of ever getting all the things in the world for one person? So this is knowledge. So point anyway being that it's so powerful, insatiable, that you have to have a very powerful means. The example is given that, well, if you want to, if you have an enemy, then there are different ways to deal with the enemy. The first one is you kind of like, kind of make friends with the enemy, something like that. That's not possible. You, you bargain with him. You bribe the guy. And then what's the next one? If that's not possible, if you don't, can't bribe him, you... You go after his people. You sow dissension amongst his ranks. You know, this is the art of you know military science and dealing with an enemy. And if you can't, you know, if you can't be successful through that, then you got to go to war with them. And so the idea here is that you got to go to war against this this force of uh, of desire. And of course, it isn't brought out here in this section entirely but it's brought out in the context of the whole Gita and certainly in the Bhagavatam. In such a um, war, the best defense is a good offense. Shiva had a good defense 
And when desire attacked him, he was doing meditation. When Cupid attacked him, Cupid came and tried to disturb Lord Shiva, and he got pissed off. This is so he looked at him and burned him to ashes, burned Cupid to ashes. Cupid is called Ananga. Another name means without body, means invisible. So this is Shiva's as an example of of Gyanmarg, anyway. And renunciation, renunciation and knowledge go together. If you have knowledge, you're going to give up things that don't endure, won't give you any stability, any security, any meaningful, lasting happiness. And so Cupid comes to offer him those things or, you know, to, to incite him in relation to those things. And um, he gets becomes angry and he burns. There are a lot of implications here. One is that Gyan unto itself is not a sufficient means to deal with lust. What does Krishna say here? Lust or desire degenerates into anger. So there are things worth doing. Desire is a is probably just a, a life symptom. So just trying to extinguish desire doesn't work. So Shiva tried to extinguish him by burning him to ashes. But then the Cupid became invisible. Problem is increased. If you could see him coming, you know, it'd be one thing, but you can't see him coming. And all of a sudden, whoosh, here you go. You know, you've heard all this for so long and so many things. So, whoosh, there you are, out the door, you know, chasing after, after nothing. Affected by Cupid's <coughs> arrow. <coughs> so, best defense is a good offense. So Bhakti offers that. That's why what we recommend, how to conquer lust, ultimately, it's not brought out, as I say, in this section, which the balance of which few verses we talking about, rooting him out of the mind, the senses, the intelligence, and so forth. And um, it's oriented kind of towards a gyan understanding, taking us into the next chapter, which is about jnana yoga and so forth. But the ultimate solution that's offered in the Gita and overtly promoted in the Bhagavatam is what? How to conquer desire. And desire, comma, is oftentimes equated with, with uh, and lust, with sex desire, because it's the most powerful desire. It said you can, all of your senses can be satisfied in the act of sex. I'm sure <laughs> some people know more about that, but... Um, but uh, it's you know the attachment to the other sex that's the binding force. It, it makes the whole world go round, right? It, it's uh, it's uh, you 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 recreate yourself through that. You know, man meets woman, and they cre- recreate themselves in son and daughter, and try to live on. You know, it, it's all an attempt to li- to find the self, right? To live on, to live eternally, and to be better, and and so forth happier, what a lousy way to try to arrive at it, <laughs> what, a, what a poor choice of, uh, you know, of paths to take in pursuit of such. But at any rate, the Bhagavatam recommends hear about Krishna's love dalliances with the gopis. Huh? All right, that's, that is the idea. That chapter, those chapters, which, which is the height of the Bhagavatam, are called Kambijai. The great annotator on the Bhagavatam, Swami, so much revered by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his associates, has labeled the Raspancha Jai, five chapters on the Raspancha Kambi Jai. Not even Kam Jai, Vijai, I mean like huge, complete victory over calm, over, over desire. The idea is, well, there, you know, there was a the perfect situation for Cupid. You got a young man. It was the harvest moon when you you know you get the fruits, and uh, young girls meeting in the dead of night. And Cupid's you know, he, has, he could do it in his sleep, right, <laughs> so to speak. But he's defeated in that situation, and Krishna triumphs as the transcendental Cupid. And so it it's, it suggests a positive kind of approach to ending this desire. The problem of desire, the problem of lust, born of the Rajaguna, by having a lust, if you will, for, for Bhagwan.
There's a comparison is made there, right there. Like a young girl would lust after a young boy, that's very powerful. So with that kind of intensity, we are to think we should pursue uh, Krishna consciousness. And this is very different than trying to stop desire. It's just trying to satisfy the desires of Krishna. So we identify with the desire of Krishna, who's a rightful enjoyer of all things. So whose enjoyment does not implicate him in some way, doesn't promote uh, uh, sorrow, means anandamai. He doesn't. We don't find pictures of Krishna, you know, sorrowful. You know, maybe you know, Leela to some extent. With, but he's pretty, pretty happy all the time. <laughs> he's clever. So, so it's very. Um, as I say, the best defense is a good offense. So bhakti doesn't try to extinguish desire. Acknowledges that that, that there is a world. There is a reality, and it, it revolves around the desire of Bhagwan. And it's a happy one. So we identify with his desire and become his servants. And, and Atmindriya, what is it? Atmindriya, Priti Vancha, Tarnam Kam, something like that. Hmm? Krishna says, Atmindriya, Priti Vancha, Tarnam Bole. He says, that Vancha, that desire for Atmindriya Priti, for satisfying, pleasing one's own senses, kambole, that's called kam, krishnendriya priti itcha, dhane prem nam, that goes by the name prem, satisfaction, the desire to satisfy the krishnendriya, indriya means senses, to satisfy the senses of Krishna, that's called prem. They look Similar, but they're the, as different as the dark moon night and the noon sun. The darkest night in the lunar month and the, and the bright day of full noon. They're, they're entirely different. They look on the surface similar. And what's different is internally is the difference, really, is that there's no selfish desire involved. Krishna has selfish desire, but he is the self, he is the center, he is the source, so it's, it, it works out. And everyone's satisfied by that because he's, everyone's part of him. When the part starts to, wants to be satisfied independently of the, of the, of the, of the whole, then it becomes a problem for itself and for other parts. So, so this is the, uh, the bhakti approach to a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Knowledge is, is, is kind of a beginning approach. Okay, let's understand it for what it is. But it's hard to just, and that's what a lot of this chapter is about, to just function in relation to knowledge, which means to stop functioning largely. Difficult to do. But again, he's segueing here into the next chapter, which is about knowledge. He'll end this whole section of the first six chapters with his emphasis on bhakti, and then start to talk about himself, his, his, his wonderful qualities, and so on and so forth, which then makes us lust for him, for his status, want to please him. If you can't beat him, well, then you join him, right? So, this is the idea. Still a little weak. Any question? All right, let's stop there. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Sri Sikrishna Arjuna ki jai. Go Pramananda.